Hello and welcome to our bonus EMJ podcast. My name is Dr. Charlie Strange. I work here in the United States at the Medical University of South Carolina in pulmonary and critical care. I'm pleased to be bringing you some expert discussion around a symposium that was held at the ERS International Congress in 2020 entitled Reimagining the Pathway for Clinical Decision-Making in Rare Lung Disease, Moving Towards the United Vision. Uh, this podcast is sponsored by CSL Bearing. Joining and co-hosting with me for today's podcast are my co-chair, Professor Diana Stoltz, Medical Director of the Clinic for Pneumonology at the University Hospital Freiburg, and Elizabeth Estes, Executive Director of Open Source Imaging Consortium, also known as OSIC. And this discussion certainly promises to be very insightful. Let's begin right into our first topic. So, Dr. Stoltz, uh, let's talk about interstitial lung disease first. Tell us about our unmet needs and how imaging can help. Yeah, hello, uh, Charlie. Happy to be with you today and uh, talk about this uh, important topic. So, uh, we know that interstitial lung disease represents a heterogeneous group of conditions with var varying etiologies and disease courses. And they, uh, unfortunately, they present similarly in the clinic. Uh, and this makes accurate diagnosis really challenging. Therefore, uh, misdiagnosis and diagnostic delays are key amethnids for patients with interstitial lung diseases. Pulmonary function tests are really important tools for assessing uh, ILD clinically, but results of such tests are variable and might not completely reflect the underlying condition. So the development of more specific and more sensitive biomarkers to assess the disease progression is really imperative for us. Subtle uh, sensitive biomarkers could be derived, for example, from imaging, imaging data and used to improve diagnosis, assess of treatment response, and also uh, could help us to determine disease trajectories. Um, Elizabeth, Elizabeth S., <laughs> I'm, I'm so happy to see that you are with us today and uh, you are the best person to, to answer the following question. So how can data repositories enhance the care of patients with rare lung diseases? Well, thanks, Dr. Stoltz and Dr. Strange. It's great to be with you um, again, and I, I love this. So thanks for that question. Stoltz, I really believe that uh, what imaging and what AI can do for imaging in rare lung diseases is huge. We all know that. We've seen it in major diseases because partially AI is great at detecting patterns and what we see in imaging in rare lung diseases. But it's also because um, we can create AI opportunities in rare lung and multimodal types of inputs. So imaging, lung function, proteomics, genomics, they all feed these deep learning algorithms. What we know is that rare diseases are behind the curve in this, mostly not because people haven't toiled for years and haven't been um, motivated to do it, but mostly because the data has been very difficult to get. So we've tried to do with the Open Source Imaging Consortium is take a new approach to this, an approach where we bring data from around the world and we, as we create opportunities with the data, meaning are we creating an, an, er, an opportunity for an early diagnosis or prognosis or response to therapy, we're going to give that information to the world and give that information away to allow people to build upon it. So I really believe that what we're seeing with artificial intelligence, as it has in other disease states and large disease states, can be huge for rare diseases, rare lung diseases specifically. So Elizabeth, can you explain OSIC a little bit better for those that don't know about it and uh, kind of the setup of the yeah. uh, company and, and what's involved? 
Well, OSIC is called is the Open Source Imaging Consortium, and we are what's called a 501c3 in the United States. What that basically means is we're a not-for-profit. We were built to bring together academia, industry, and philanthropy in a way to look at the disease differently, to try to shape the future of research for the disease differently. And so we brought together um, all of these experts in different uh, verticals. Well, we have radiologists, pulmonologists, artificial intelligence experts, and we have them all on the OSIC team. And what's been amazing is the cross-pollination of ideas and the cross-pollination um, of really people learning from each other. So the AI people who had never seen a rare disease and they're used to huge numbers of data, they have an ability to look at this data. And our team is thinking, well, 15,000 HRCTs for, an inner, for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is a large number. It's taught the AI people how to get very specific and how to get very creative in using data. So... What we've been able to do is we have a 15,000 scan goal, and we've reached that goal. We have over 17,000 committed. We have over 3,000 scans in the database currently, um, and we have more coming in as we speak. And what we've been able to do is allow researchers from all over the world to be able to use this data who are members of OSIC um, to be able to build upon their research and their scientific discoveries. The whole goal is to make radical progress on behalf of the patients all over the world. And so the cool part about the OSIC database is it's the most diverse one in the world. We have scans from every continent um, and getting more. And we will hopefully by the end of next year, reach our goal of 15,000 in ingested into the database. Oh, well, that's amazing. You know, when I reflect on um, the years of interstitial lung disease care and my area of COPD, um, we have struggled so long for something other than lung function as an outcome measure. And so to actually have radiographic uh, imaging outcomes that we can apply to our clinical trials, to me, makes uh, common sense and really the uh, direction that we need to move as a pulmonary community in a big way. But, you know, this hard about trying to make the right algorithms of CT acquisition and the quality control and all of that and when we actually give an outcome measure that people can't see on their own screens with their own patient right in the clinic, it makes it very, very hard. Right. So, uh, so there's this communication piece that I think is real important as we move to using imaging biomarkers in COPD or in interstitial lung disease. How are we going to let OSIC uh, guide us uh, towards that goal? Oh, boy, that is the question. And, you know, it's interesting. That's why we need experts like Dr. Stoltz and you, Dr. Strange, as a part of this, because we want to do this together, right? We are never going to be the person that's going to come out and say, this is the absolute. It's going to be a community of people who have come together with the right passion and the right reason to help us do that. Biomarkers are tough, right? Especially when you look at progression. I mean, it's a very, very variable look for one patient. Are they going to be a rapid progressor? Or are they going to be a slow progressor? So I think what this is going to be is done in phases and done in pieces. Right now, it's still ingesting the data, which has taken an inordinate <laughs> long time to get, much to my dismay. It's been much more difficult than I think the naive me believed five years ago when we started this project. But we're bringing the data in now, and now we're starting to see what we can learn from it. From there, we start testing this, right? And we start saying, does this make sense? And we work with with clinicians all over the world like you who, who know these patients, who see these patients, who have to give this news to these patients. So from our perspective, we don't expect to be the expert of the end all. We expect to be somewhat of the catalyst to help us all get to that place where we can find something that is meaningful. If we can't get it to Dr. Stoltz or to you, 
at the clinician or at the, at the patient bedside, then we failed as an organization. That is our 100% goal. And we're going to get there together. Um, but it is, it is interesting. And if you could come into some of our working groups and if all the listeners could come into some of the working groups and hear the debates going on about which biomarker is meaningful. Um, it's, it is, a, it's, it's going to be one of those things that I think will take the community to come together and to agree. Diana, talk to me about uh, the rapid progressor and why don't we want to just treat everybody with interstitial lung disease and why, why are these people so important? Yeah, well, um, we know that the, all these therapies have uh, side effects and costs and for sure we want to go not only for um, evidence-based medicine, but we want to go for procedure medicine, right? We don't want to uh, just treat 100 people um, or 100,000 people so that one or two would get better, but we want to really identify which are the patients that will have the most benefit and that require treatment. And I think for that, we need to move to procedure medicine. We, we have to find out which is the patient that will progress and to, to catch this patient before this progress even starts. And uh, we could try to establish therapy at an early uh, time point so that we have the most out of it. So I, I think it would be um, a huge um, uh, effort for us and a huge uh, development if we were able to see uh, the same level at an university hospital with a lot of specialists or a small clinic, we, if we would have access to a tool that would enable us to at an early stage um, make the diagnosis uh, or at least limit the diagnosis to a certain uh, disease category and identify which are the potential uh, candidates for them. Yeah, we've been particularly stymied in that same endeavor in, a, in my uh, favorite rare disease, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, just because number one, the emphysema is sometimes hard to see. It's panacin or it's lower low predominant for the majority of patients. And to try and figure out this emphysema progressive or not is a really, really hard thing. And particularly when FEV1 and other spirometry measures don't really correlate at all with emphysema. When you do the correlation graphs, they look like a shotgun blast of, uh, of just almost no correlation. And so it's a, been important to for us to try and convince regulators that FEV1 is not the signal of, F, of emphysema progression. And B, it still has this whole flavor that we're trying to convince clinicians that we found an important biomarker, but they can't actually get the numbers on their patients in front of them in the clinic. And so we really have a whole lot of work to do. And uh, I think our part of our discussion at ERS was all around trying to develop. We've not really done good science around what the variability is around individual patients and, and showed that we had uh, in a, an exacerbation signal in which uh, density uh, signals uh, deteriorated for about six weeks after an exacerbation event. So, uh, so that piece was important, but still the first step. I think that leads us into all the quality control to get good regulatory biomarkers. Elizabeth, talk to me about how we're going to do that uh, in the OSIC compendium of uh, scans. Yeah, well, I think, and everything you just discussed, I mean, whether it's alpha-1 antitrypsin or, or whether it's sarcoidosis or whether it's, uh, you know, IPF, we're dealing with the same issues, right, on the front end. It, the variability, first of all, from the multi-centers. And then what what is progressive? One physician might say, this is a progressive disease, this is going to be a rapid progressor, and one might say they're not. So how do we find, how do we level the playing field, not only from academic institutions and academic medical centers, but to those 
those patients in the hinterlands, as I would call it, um, how do we make sure that, that this, is, this is leveling the playing field? And that's really why OSIC was created. As it relates to the regulatory bodies, we've, we've taken a different approach at this. We've gone to them and we've met with them a few times already. And we've looked at them and, and, and said, here's what we've done. We're, we're an open book. Here's how we built this. Here's how we're thinking this may work. Tell us what we've done wrong. Tell us what we've done right. Tell us what we need to do differently. So when we get to the point that our partners are building these biomarkers or these devices or these diagnostics or whatever it may be, have we done it right? I will tell you um, a lot of what we've done has been on the QC and the workflows of bringing this data in. And I can't I cannot stress enough how important that's been. We just had a huge call yesterday about should we start accepting, you know, data in a certain format? Should we not take data in a certain format? When you're a rare disease and you need as much data as you can, you you don't want to be too particular. On the other hand, does it help the algorithms if we're taking interspace scans? You know, they need to be volumetric. We know that, right? So those types of things are when we started OSIC, we started by not letting perfect be the enemy of good. And now as we're getting more scans in, we're trying to, and seeing what the AI teams and the machines are reading, we're trying to get more specificity on the types of scans we're bringing in for all interstitial lung diseases and all lung diseases. And we are moving into alpha one. We are moving into sarcoid. We are moving into those diseases. So I think the regulatory piece um, again, I keep using the phased approach because I don't know how else to say it, Charlie, but I think the regulatory piece is an important part of what we're doing, and we, we've been trying to do that as we've gone along. One other thing I want to say is, you know, it, it's systems theory, right? You want to change the output of something to change the input. One of the things that's been a little interesting to me, and I, I'm hoping that the respiratory community, uh, the radiology community is listening, but, you know, there's not been a lot of standards as it relates to how to take these scans, and that's been a big battle for us bringing the data in because institutions are doing it differently all, all over the world. They've not put out guidelines. They put out suggestions on how to do it. So I really think as we look at a community and building more AI down the road, it starts with those images and how we're building um, uh, qualifications on how to take them. So I'm hoping that the radiology community can help us do that moving forward because the machines will be much quicker in, in their, in their uh, be able to give us a great output. Yeah, no, I, I speak uh, directly from the, the rapid study that was done in Alpha-1 where CSL uh, randomized uh, patients to drug or placebo over the course of four years, two years uh, blinded and then an extension trial. But in the CTs acquired during that scan, it was measuring the the distance from the uh, table to the floor and making sure there was a coach total lung capacity scan and all the details that just don't happen in the usual scans in our radiology departments. And so you're going to have some with really high quality. Um, and we do that for all of our uh, regulatory trials, our clinical trials. Uh, but, you know, I think it's, uh, I don't know how, how you gauge that quality within OSIC to be able to make sure that there's there's, there's going to be variability that we all recognize within uh, the data set that you have there and how we deal with that obviously will need some guidance. Yeah, it absolutely does. Go ahead, Diana. No, I was just I was thinking that it's also important uh, if we talk about this to make sure that we put out the value of these measurements because what we usually encounter is we call radiology and say, could you give us this and that and we would like to get this measurement and they're like, oh yeah, well... You know, they first, sometimes they don't know we want to get that. And second, I think they 
most people feel that it doesn't have immediate implications for the treatment of patients. And I think this is something we, we can change by uh, this uh, analysis of uh, a large amount of CT scans and um, really showing and putting forward how important this information is for us to make sure that we are making the right diagnosis. So this is definitely something we would like to see happening all around. And um, I think this also offers us the opportunity to get patients that we are missing today because uh, there is no specialized, uh, specialized thoracic uh, radiologist looking at this. So the diagnosis won't be made or will be made way too late and we could um, decrease this kind of um, loss of um, diagnosis just by offering uh, an instrument that help people out uh, that don't have this amount of experience to uh, pinpoint a diagnosis. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Diana. And and honestly, OSIC is getting ready to um, do our second white paper on this very, this very topic, on how important the radiology scans are machine learning pieces, right? So to your point, we have to show the value of why it's important to take that extra time and do it the way they do it. Now, that makes sense for you know, the academic medical centers and, and even for a lot of the, the perfunctory, the ones who are out um, away from the academic medical centers. But we also need to consider that two thirds of the world don't have HRCT machines. So what about the people in the countries who, and, and, and a lot of those countries have an over-index of people with lung diseases because of pollution and other things. So what do we do there? So we're actually working on a new project called Project Opus in OSIC, which also brings in x-rays. Now, I, I've said this before and I've said it um, gently, but you know, I've had a lot of people say, well, Elizabeth, you can't see any kind of interstitial lung disease or you can't see any of that on an x-ray. And I start laughing and I'm like, you're right, you can't, but the machine might be able to, we don't know. So it's important that we also not forget those people who don't have access to those HRCT machines and how do we try to broaden our approach and broaden our reach to them. And so we're, we're getting ready to write a white paper on imaging and how it's so important for the machines. And hopefully that will help, um, that will help at least get the dialogue going. And, and hopefully our friends in the radiology world might start really creating some guidelines for absolutes in these. I would just challenge some of our listeners, though, to think about this for a minute. We have absolutely no trial in the field of pulmonary medicine that randomizes patients to a high-res CT or no high-res CT, following them for five-year outcomes in COPD or interstitial lung disease. It's so innate to our way of thinking as pulmonologists that when you look at the level of evidence that we should be doing CT scans around the world, it's just not there. And uh, that, that falls into some of our US Public Health Service guidelines around don't do a CT and the insurance companies in the United States read that and say, oh, we're gonna deny this CT, there's no clinical indication. And, and so I think the larger community needs to grapple with this uh, concept of being able to actually study the CT as a tool for each of our diseases. And, and we, I think we all intrinsically know its value, picking up bronchiectasis and progression on, uh, on and where the infiltrates are in interstitial lung disease, but we've not done a good job at uh, laying the groundwork for why this is so important. I think this is a really interesting point. And we, we just put out a paper on um, COPD in the Lancet, uh, the Lancet COPD Commission that had a large part of the document dedicated to this question because what we suggested was that the diagnosis of COPD that is a very common disease could be based not only on the evidence of a spirometric obstruction but also on CT findings because what we've seen is that if you 
call around the world and ask people, you know, tell us how much percent of your patients will have um, uh, the possibility to undergo lung function, how much of percent of these patients will get a CT scan. Uh, actually, the availability of CT scans around the world is higher than the availability of spirometry. And we were quite shocked with this data. Um, and for sure, we can say, okay, oh, that's a bad thing. We need for, to diagnose lung disease. We need a lung function. We stick to this. And, you know, but we could also say, wow, this is an opportunity, right? Uh, if we do have CTs going on for everything else, including lung cancer screening, why not to say, okay, this is exactly what we want. And we start from there, right? Uh, we start from identifying patients in CT scan that have certain uh, abnormalities that will have a very high association with certain diseases, and then we get the lung function. So um, I think we have to see the glass half full here and uh, take advantage of this, um, this information and move uh, from here, perhaps let's say back to lung function to see where we are standing. But we do so many examinations uh, in, uh, in terms of CT that uh, we do it for everything, right? And then we see the lung on that, and then we should take this information and move from there. In the United States, the American Lung Association has stepped up to the plate to do a large study in 25 to 35-year-old individuals just after they've reached mature lung age to do 4,000 CT scans and follow them for as long as we can get funding for. And so uh, this uh, Lung Health Consortium uh, that is uh, enrolling right now for young individuals is going to study the, the issues of tomorrow with CT scans, the global warming, uh, the new viruses that emerge, uh, and just things that we might not have envisioned in thinking about pulmonary medicine from yesteryear. So uh, I think it's this forward thinking that is going to drive part of this discussion around the clinic utility of anything we do around the CT scan. Yeah, and Charlie, you know, it, it, I, and outside of the U.S., I know in Europe there's a huge push right now, especially in Germany, um, through the ERS to do lung cancer screenings for the, the same exact reason, right? So we've actually had discussions about uh, the potential of OSIC broadening a bit to bring some of those lung cancer scans, scans in because we know that 10% might have an ILA, right? And from there, what happens? And if you have longitudinal uh, scans that you can look at, can we predict that that ILA will turn into something progressive? I mean, I mean, to me, that would be the holy grail because we're getting them sooner. We can diagnose it sooner. We can give pro uh, prediction of progression. So we're very focused on um, a new focus of OSIC is to potentially bring in some of those lung cancer scans from around the world that might have that, that ILA and then turn into something progressive. So I totally agree with you. And I think it's something that the world is seeing um, as it relates to where we can go with this. I mean, it's cool. The, the hardest part is, and I've said this to everybody i've had the the most i mean i i'm i'm i, I want to say this in the most sensitive way possible i'm blessed to be able to do what i do to, to 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 be able to travel and see all of the good work being done around the world and i it, it's painful because you see what this means right and i've said this to a lot of people we've done this for five years and it's not lost on us oh sick you know that 80 percent of the people with interstitial lung diseases that we started with are gone, right? We aren't going fast enough and we know that and we're trying to get there faster, but it's trying to wrangle all of these different parts and pieces around the world that are in their own silos and trying to bring them together. And, and that's what OSIC is really intended to do. And, and we'll do anything we can to try to get there quicker and, and make radical progress. But I agree with Diana and I agree with you that this is a huge opportunity with where we're seeing um, from the first part of the lung cancer screenings to, to maybe progress into other diseases. And we have an opportunity and a responsibility to try to figure out where those are going to go. 
Yeah, I'm reflecting on our own low-dose CT scans here that aren't being done enough, uh, particularly in populations of color in the United States. And I think our goals to um, actually do the scans on patients who are within 15 years of cigarette smoking is hitting about 5% of what the target population should be. So we have lots of opportunity on the acquisition side. I guess my question to you is what are we gonna do if these are really low dose? Will your machines be able to bring them in and compare them to the scans that are thin slice and high resolution? That's a great question. <laughs> and as I said, it's the one thing that we're wrestling with right now. We don't wanna, we don't wanna try to be too wide here, right? We don't want to boil the ocean because there are so many things that need to be done. But we also know that if we can make progress in where we started, then we can take some of those learnings and apply them to these broader topics that you're discussing, right? And we have this great coalition of experts. I mean, to come to OSIC, it, it isn't just about getting the data. It's about really learning and, and bouncing things off of, of, the, of this expert community that we have that we're so grateful that are, that are passionate about this topic. So I don't know the answers to all these questions, and I don't know that anybody in OSIC does yet, but I can tell you we're testing and learning and, and, and we're trying and we're trying to make progress by what we've already created, which is an unbelievable QC process of all of our data. That's been the biggest part, the workflows. And as we start to broaden it, we'll take that same approach to everything that we do. Um, so I, I don't know the answer. I wish I did. And I, gosh, you have no idea how much I w wish we could get there quicker. Diana, I think you asked me at ERS, Elizabeth, what's the goal for the next five years? Do you remember that question? And I said, I said, I'm going to be naive and arrogant at the same time. And I know this isn't real, but my, my goal for OSIC for the next five years is that we're out of business because we've solved all the problems. I know that can't happen, but I sure wish it could. Great. Um, so I think with that, we will conclude our discussion today. Thank you, Dr. Strange and Elizabeth Estes for making today's discussion so thought-provoking and sharing your insights around the potential for imaging techniques to improve diagnosis, prognosis, and treatment response prediction in rare lung diseases with our audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe for our future podcasts. We release a new episode every Friday, as well as plenty of bonus episodes like this one. Until next time, take care and goodbye for now. Thank you. Bye.